This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I met her at one of our meetings and knew she disliked me intensely on sight. I was young and pretty, and she had totally succumbed to the law of gravity without <laughs> attempting to do a thing about it. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest Booker Prize podcast with me, James Walton. And me, Joe Hamia. And today we're doing another of the Booker Books of the Month for August obviously, and it is going to be Muriel Sparks loitering with intent. But uh, let's just loiter with intent for, uh, ourselves for a bit while we start off with our uh, traditional uh, questions to each other. Let's go for it. Loitering with intent starts out, we know that it starts out with Fleur Talbot, you know, writing a memoir. They're essentially reading a book within a book. Um, within a book, within a book, but we'll get onto that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't confuse them yet, okay. James. Um but it did get me wondering. Well, th- so the first scene is sort of this remarkable scene of Fleur in a graveyard writing a poem, and a policeman comes up to her, and you know she's eating a sandwich and she offers him lunch, and um, it's just so gorgeous. And I was wondering, you know, if you had to, if you were going to write a memoir, what life event or day of your life you would start on? Don't say birth because that's boring. <laughs> Oh, there's <laughs> my answer gone then. Uh, okay. Uh, yes, well, she, it is interesting. She picks a turning. She does say this is a big turning point in my life. She just finished one job and she's about to yeah. move on. Um, there's that line of the Water Boys that I'm, or a song by the Water Boys that I'm quite fond of called uh, That Was the River. And the chorus is That Was the River, This Is the Sea. And that bit when you, I, I, this might be on my mind now because my son is absolutely heartbreakingly at a university open day today. Oh. Like, which means he's going to leave home. I've got, oh. I've got to the stage now where I can't watch David Attenborough documentaries in which birds leave the nest. I, I mean, seriously, it's absolutely horrible. And uh, and um, so because that's on my mind, um, and I, I think his life now, you know, I'm, about to, I'm about to, he's just got a provisional license, about to just take him driving, the little fella. And, <laughs> and uh, he is, um, so that, that point at which, you know, that was, that was the river. This is the sea for him. Um, so maybe, maybe it was that. Maybe it is. Uh, That's you would, why you'd start with your son leaving him. Uh, no, I'd leave. No, it's made me think of that bit where you oh. where you suddenly realise, uh oh, or hurrah, or a bit of both. <laughs> you know, my parents are gone now, and it's me. That was the river. This is the sea. Aww. Uh, Do you want a tissue? <laughs> I've actually got one. I have actually have. I know. I told. I'm not. I'm not faking this. I, I. I don't know how children. I don't know how parents do the empty nest syndrome business. Just seems, you know, a bit empty. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. Yeah. My mum cried for days when I left. No, no, no. I lied about it. I know. And, 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 
She went, I didn't cry at all when you left. And then my sister was there saying, she cried for a week. <laughs> and obviously you prepare them for this and this means you've done your job and everything and it's great that he's out there in the world, but it isn't really. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, well, in the, uh, let, me, let me come back to you with a, a question of, Almost profound, <laughs> of complete shallowness after all that. You know, you've brought that out. God, you've set me off now. Uh, um, okay, Joe, what's your favourite album of all time? Uh, okay, we, the, the so, only way no, to do this is just, just the first two or three that pop into your head. First two or three that pop into my head. They're all Nick Cave albums. <laughs> Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. It's fine, I mean. Um, and I think I have a really soft spot for Push the Sky Away because it's the first album it was released in 2013 and I was a teenager at the time and that was my first it wasn't my first Nick Cave album that I'd ever heard of but the first one that I was conscious of being released that I waited for it had its 10 year anniversary this year and I I cried for a more pathetic reason <laughs> I listened to it all the way through Boatman's Call I'm a Boatman's Call boy myself are you I see I find it really rough because I feel like that album has become cliched to a I know, I know. The, the trouble is, you, to you, I know, but, the, but that's like saying, "What's your favorite album, Sergeant Pepper?" But what if it just is the best? You know what I mean? Well, we're about to get onto Muriel Spark, and people will say uh, the Prime Minister Jean Brodie is by far our best book, and it, that's a cliche. And it's also, as far as I can see, true. Yeah, maybe it's just the fact that Into My Arms has been so tragically overplayed at this point. Uh, yes, so Muriel Spark, and we're, the reason we're, um, we're doing Muriel Spark's loitering with intent because this was one of three of her books that were shortlisted for the Booker Prize over the years. Uh, and the last one to be so in, in 1981. Amazing so, shortlist. Yeah, it was. I mean, that, that was the year that Midnight's Children by Simon Rushdie won and in some ways revolutionised literature or mod <laughs> revolutionised modern fiction. Certainly revolutionised Booker. It, it really did. Um, other books on the shortlist that year included uh, Ian McEwan, The Comfort of Strangers. Rushdie McEwan, in fact, the only two people born after the war on that list. Uh, so, <laughs> but there's 81 which was not that long after the war uh, but, um, but Muriel Spark by no means the oldest Molly Keane I think was born 1906 or something anyway um, so that's why we've picked uh, Lodging with Intent uh, I mean apart from its obvious qualities that we'll be coming on to um, it might be worth saying a bit about Muriel Spark herself I, I get the impression slight, I, I don't know if this is unfair but sort of 30 years ago she was absolutely one of the leading British novelists um, and seemed absolutely locked in stone. I'm not sure that apart from the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, which we may come back to the fact that it, I think it probably is by, by some distance her best book, mm -hmm. uh, whether she's read wi widely anymore, um, but she's just, or whether she's become something of a name. I, I mean, I, we would encourage people to read, read her more, wouldn't we? But um, should we say a bit about, about Muriel Spark herself first? Sure. I, so to, to your point, I always had the kind of impression that, Muriel Spark was always on my to-read list. So it's great to have the excuse now, but I always sort of pictured myself reading Muriel Spark on a beach, even though I'm sort of inherently opposed to the idea of beach reads. But it's because I had this image of her as, as a literary hot girl. Yeah. Um, I, I was so thrilled when I started looking into her that that was utterly correct. Um, and she does have this very uh, kind of glamorous literary vagabond backstory. Um, so she was born in Edinburgh, yeah, in quite right. a good neighbourhood, apparently. I have this from Alan Massey, yeah, <laughs> a very yeah, respectable yeah. neighbourhood. Yeah. Um, when? 1918 she was born. She was, she was first published at the age of 12. She, yeah. was, she was a poet and it, she also went to James Gillespie School where one of her teachers was Christine Kay. Who, and that was the inspiration for... for, for Miss Jean Brodie, although Miss Jean Brodie t twisted from Christine Kay in a way that, um, that she 
is is one of her ways of operating, as we, we, we may discuss. I mean, she calls in her autobiography uh, Christine K. Wonderful, inspiring, and does say she was a model for Jean Brodie, but mm. but Jean Brodie is more complicated than that. Um, as a young woman, she she has a rather unfortunate marriage. There's this amazing interview where she says that she got married because it was the only way a young woman at the time was permitted to have sex and have fun. But it turned out that her husband was a depressive. She'd actually followed him to what was then Rhodesia and is now Zimbabwe. That's right. As luck would have it, he was called Sidney Oswald Spark, which meant, so his initials were SOS. <laughs> she played with a bit. And she also said at one point he was a borderline case and I didn't like what was on either side of the border. <laughs> but, she, but, she, but she also, um, I, I think it's a good point. She said she got, um, one thing she did get out of it was a good surname. Uh, so that, that marriage fell apart. She came back to Britain during the war, uh, started working for the Poetry Society, edited the Poetry Society magazine where um, she feels in her autobiography, she's absolutely um, savage about uh, her enemies. She feels she was sort of patronised as a young woman. She was more modernist than the old fashioned people there. And uh, she writes about that with, with her autobiography, uh, Curriculum Vitae. But the bit on the um, Poetry Society is uh, fantastically bitter. Here she is on Mary Stokes, the famous champion of birth control for women, controversially at the time, and the Mary Stokes clinics and so on. And uh, she's one of her enemies at the Poetry Society because she was involved in that. <laughs> oh, uh, and she says, I met her at one of our meetings and knew she disliked me intensely on sight. I was young and pretty. And she had totally succumbed to the law of gravity without <laughs> attempting to do a thing about it. Uh, uh, I used to think it a pity that her mother, rather than she, had not thought of birth control. Uh, so anyway, so, so the, the, uh, and she also says in that book that she fed poetry society experiences into loitering with intent, but again, in, in the sort of same twisted way in which Christine Kay becomes Miss Jean Brodie, because it's not absolutely apparent. Uh, picking up the story, she is sacked by the poetry society as the editor of the magazine. So then she did... She sort of hung around literary London, on the edge of literary London, um, rather like the character uh, in Loitering with Intent, uh, wrote biographies of Mary Shelley and Emily Bronte and others, won a short story competition in The Observer, uh, like a very prestigious one, 1951, and that was, then she was sort of off, her first mm -hmm. novel, Comforters, came in 1954. Miss Jean Brodie sort of conquers the world in 1961, that brings her loads of money from films and TVs and theatre awards. Uh, and then she did become a sort of literary grand dame living in New York and then Italy, uh, then Rome and then Tuscany and hosting sort of glamorous parties and and living a sort of writer's life that I don't know how many people do that anymore. Mm. She's buried in Tuscany now. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Her gravestone just says, um, poeta, poet. Oh, yes, she always considered herself a poet rather than a novelist. Yeah. I tried to read some of her poetry. It is incredibly formal. Even though you, you know that she's completely in command of her craft when she's writing, there, there is a kind of carefree attitude in her book, or not exactly carelessness, but sort of a, yeah. an easiness. Uh, um, uh, and, but her poetry is so, it's incredibly rigorous. I mean, I must say, it's not, it's not unusual for me, in my experience for writers to not realise what they're best at. Mm. I think... I think she's much better as a novelist than a poet. Well, it's interesting. I was watching an interview with her where she was saying that um, the novel is a cheat for a short story and the short story is a cheat for a poem. And she considered the poem a completely superior form. And that was because she felt that the only way one could be a creative writer, and I do agree with her on this, is that you had to have an ear for musicality. You had to know how to construct a sentence so it would sound good. So with all of that, we, we should now summarise Loitering with Intent. Uh, which even um, by our standards is a 
pretty hard book to summarize. I don't know. I feel like this one's going to be um, oh, right. okay. in that case, unusually I, short. In that case, consider the book passed. Because, well, <laughs> I mean, maybe you should set this up. So after Miss Jean Brodie, early 60s, she's got that. She's got uh, Girls of Slender Means, Battle of Peckham Rye. Um, and then so, t- tools along. She, um, she also shortlisted in the very first Booker Prize for The Public Image, which I've read and... Uh, couldn't quite see what the fuss about. Driver's Seat uh, was also appeared on there's a Booker Prize for because there was a missing year because the way the Booker worked out. Uh, so for the missing year, 1970, the Driver's Seat appears on that. Um, and she considered that her best book. It was a very weird one about a woman who basically shows up in a city in Italy deciding she wants to be murdered and she has to identify who's going to murder her and make him murder her. <laughs> uh, we can come back to themes of predestination. But in, in quite a lot of her books, there's a sort of novelist figure who... Um, a, Great characters, really. Uh, Miss Jean Brodie famously um, has, you know, her set, and she ascribes what characteristics each of them should have, and they live up to the live up to it as as best they can in a way. Certainly at school, um, so they're literary creations. So bearing all that in mind, the main character in here is a novelist who seems to be based on Muriel Spark, and and then what happens. <laughs> So we open with our novelist whose name is Fleur Talbot. I love that because there's a recurring uh, disdain for the figure of the English rose in this book and yet its main character who who hands out, parcels out this disdain is is called Fleur. Um, We open with an image of her uh, in a graveyard Around Earl's Court, I uh, think. Kensington. Oh, Kensington. Yeah, so, so somewhere in West London. From, yeah, I loved reading this because it was so local to me. It, yeah. I love it when that happens. And she's in a graveyard. She's working on a poem. Uh, she's approached by a policeman. And she basically begins to set out the premise that she will be writing a kind of memoir of the, a year in her life uh, in the middle of the century. This book takes place in 1949, stretches through to 1950. And at the beginning of this year, Fleur is, she's working on her very first novel called War and a Chase. It's sort of a psychological thriller. She's broke in the manner of all writers. We know this. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so uh, a friend finds her a job uh, at the Autobiographical Association, which I believe is based on the uh, poetry well, so she says in Curriculum Vitae, but it's very... When the Autobiographical Association, not, not the only example of this at all in, in Muriel Spark, is sort of sort of semi-realistic and semi-weirder than that. Yeah. So it's a group of people who decide they're going to write their autobiographies, but because they don't want to scandalise people, they're going to write them and then wait 70 years before they publish them. Um, it's run by a, a guy called Sir Quentin, and it consists mainly of posh people. Um, Fleur is brought in to sort of crack their grammar and everything, but starts to make up just to sex up their stories, really. Meanwhile? Meanwhile, well, we should also mention, because I think she may be my favourite character in this whole book. So Quentin uh, is also quite beleaguered with his rather elderly, slightly spiteful and wonderful mother. Edwina. Edwina, who will sort of lose control of her bladder at will whenever it suits her and I love the phrase that's used fluxive precipitations yes fluxive <laughs> precipitations well that's one of the that's one of the tricks is a Fleur suggests suggests that phrase to um Beryl Timms who is the housekeeper who starts using it and so in a way she's creating dialogue for the I mean the, the mix of novel and this is why I think it is quite hard to summarize novel and reality and intertext it really does so even that bit you're mentioning her name Fleur you know, she says, I've got one of these names that, you know, haphazardly chosen, Fleur. Mm. Well, it's not haphazardly chosen because Muriel Sparks chosen it quite carefully. Yeah. 
anyway. So Fleur, Fleur is sort of tarting up the autobiographical association's manuscript. She's made friends with Edwina. She's working on her War and a Chase manuscript by night. She is also, and I adore this, <laughs> having an affair with her friend Dottie's husband, <laughs> who uh, is a rather unaccomplished writer who later in the novel decides uh, that not being satisfied with his wife or his mistress, he will take up with a poet amazingly named Grey Mauser. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but very early on into the mix, and I adore Muriel Spark for this, Fleur uh, begins to be suspicious of uh, Sir Quentin's intent towards these uh, members of the Autobiographical Association. Spark is wonderful because she spoils her own novels around page five. We know that uh, Sir Quentin is a, quote, psychological Jack the Ripper unquote, and that uh, he will end up dead by the end of the novel. The more interesting part, really, than uh, the fact that Sir Quentin ends up dead and various members of the Autobiographical Association end up dead, is the fact that their group and their lives begin to mirror the manuscript that Fleur is working on, Warren de Chase. And there is that sort of bleed of reality into fiction or or even the question of which comes first, yeah. whether it's a like predestination, yeah. yes, yeah. whether it's a sort of predestination or, or you know. And so the reason you really uh, hang around to read this book is, um, I suppose, not to find out what, but to find out, or not even to find out how, because that's sort of given to you in the War and the Chase manuscript, but to find out, I suppose, there are there are why. sort of th there are sort of thriller elements. So Warren de Chase starts to predict what's happening or reflect what's happening within the group. But at the same time, Sir Quentin at one point threatens to sue <laughs> the publisher of Warren de Chase if it ever gets published. Yeah. And so it has to be withdrawn because it says it's drawing on their lives. Meanwhile, he then steals the manuscript of Warren de Chase, partly to make sure it's never published and partly to insert parts of it into the autobiographies that these people have bought. So which way round, who's making up what? is very difficult to, to know. As it's, it's, it's an endlessly slippery book. There's one There's, bit where, where someone asks Fleur, you know, is it true you're writing a novel about us? Yeah. Now, the answer to that within the book is no. Yeah. But the answer in outside the book is, well, I, well I'm not, but Muriel Spark sort of is. And there is that question of whether Fleur is, is making stuff happen simply by imagining it and writing it down, or whether she is seeing that happening because she's written it down. I think we do that a bit in our own lives as well, isn't it? We sort of... Remember our past in a certain way, and then that becomes... In narrative Yeah, exactly. So so which way round it is, is quite complicated, I think. Well, Fleur is quite clear on which way round it is, at least at the beginning of the book. In the same way that I think um, Muriel Spark is, whenever people press her on her books being autobiographical, she says, they, well, they're not. And people go, you know, the characters do what you did in life. And she says, well, they sort of do. <laughs> and the yeah. sort of is important. There's that rather weird bit where she says, sometimes I only meet characters... After in, I've written them. After I've written them. Mm. But again, that's not unique to novelists, is it? I mean, we might say, you know, that bloke's just like David Brent or something. You know, once there's, once there's a character being created, then you start to see people like that character. But Sir Quentin does start to use phrases yeah. that Warren de Chase says in the book. Which is just so <laughs> deliciously nasty. Yeah, but, but again, there's that 
if you step back further, it's not, you know, it's not coincidence that we're using phrases that were in the novel. It's because Muriel Spark wrote both of those novels. Mm. So that endless sort of twistiness. I, uh, is it too, is it too twist? I mean, is it, is it possible to, because as I say, there's a pretty good story with stolen manuscripts and she has to get it back and then she steals yeah. the autobiographies and then there's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot, a lot of stuff that would just be in a, a basic thriller with a MacGuffin, you know, the MacGuffin being the manuscript and so on. But at the same time, it's so constantly twisted that, um, but I love that. I think if it was a straightforward thriller, we wouldn't really be here talking about it now. The material would exhaust itself. No, okay. So, you know, I mean, I sort of take your point, and I think this might be, sorry to say this in a podcast, but in a way, it, it's when you stop to really talk about it that it, it sounds a <laughs> lot less fun than it is to read. Uh, take this bit for a, for a minute. So, so this is Dottie, her friend, whose husband she's sleeping with, and she, you know, She's very uh, sort of cold about that. <laughs> As she says about Dottie early on, she had confronted me with, with my affair with her husband, which I thought tiresome of her. Anyway, so um, <laughs> they, they hang on. And um, she says, I, I, um, I don't know why I thought of Dottie as my friend, but I did. I believe she thought the same about me, although she didn't really like me. In those days, among the people I mixed with, one had friends almost by predestination. Mm. There's a big Muir Spark word we might come back to. There they were, like your winter coat and your meagre luggage. You didn't think of discarding them just because you didn't altogether like them. So the idea is you've got these friends um, by predestination, but the predestination, again, is because Muriel Spark has given you these friends in this novel. So uh, I think it probably is, you know, that famous Muriel Spark principle of nevertheless. Oh, you're, you're never going to settle on, on one distinct side of the coin. You're always going to be going nevertheless. Do you want to say a bit about the, the nevertheless? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, funny you should say that about nevertheless. I, I, unfortunately, I did some swatting up uh, <laughs> on, on this idea of nevertheless in her, in her book. It's from an essay uh, she wrote in 1970 called What Images Return. And she says, My whole education in and out of school seemed even then to p- pivot around this word, nevertheless. My teachers used it a great deal. I find that much of my literary composition is based on the nevertheless idea. So I think this, this links to. Uh, listeners might be most famous with Miss Jean Brodie, who is, you know, on, on the one hand, charismatic and fantastic, nevertheless a fascist. Never, <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, uh, you know, an insp- inspirational teacher, nevertheless a corrupting teacher. Oh, nevertheless, rest in, in peace, Muriel Spark. You would have loved Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You're, nevertheless is not a very popular concept these days. I, I, I feel like it is a kind of um, how to write a Muriel Spark novel in the sense that there's this, oh, I'm sure it went viral on Twitter. Uh, two or three years ago, but now famous, um, also BBC Archive uh, clip where Spark sets out how she writes a novel and it's marvellous. And she takes out this kind of, she's sitting at her desk and she takes out a very slim kind of jotter notebook yeah. and she opens it up and she grabs a pen and she goes. I begin at the beginning, I write my name on the first page, I write my name and then I write I write the title, then I write my name, then I turn over and I write the title of the book, I write chapter one and then I write on. And when it's, uh, I leave a space so I can make alterations as I go along, but I don't revise it afterwards. And uh, then it goes to the typist and she types it and I revise that and that's the book. That's finished. Is that that how you write your books, Jack? Absolutely, yes. (laughs) She's not a serious person. Um, but I I get the sense that there are sort of um, little 
the Sparkian part of that in loitering with intent. Um, Fleur at some point says, um, uh, I'm quoting here, I remember as a young child being obliged to write out in my copybook, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, and then another maxim was, all is not gold that uh, glisters and honesty is the best policy. All these sort of um, moral sayings that she's copying into her jotter as a child uh, to improve her handwriting, but which actually come to hand when she's writing her novel. And there is a kind of um, parallel between Spark using the same jotters as, you know, when she was at school to then write her 22 books with. Um, uh, This idea that I think there are a lot of sort of um, maxims in this book on on how to, you know, what makes a, a good novel. Um, you've got some kind of to hand um, to my, quote. my swatty notes. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll give you some of my swatty notes. So she, she, she's uh, reading uh, Wanda Chase to her friend Dottie, or friend, friend that she doesn't like, nevertheless, uh, uh, her friend. Um, and she, like, she explains things. So she at the one point, um, Dottie says, "This is you know, this this scene is very cold. There's not much emotion in it," and she's very pleased about that because yeah. that, that's that's what she wants to write. She, she, she will say things like to make a character ring true it needs to be contradictory mm. somewhere a paradox and at one point uh, Dot- Dottie says but readers like to know where they stand and Fleur doesn't agree and you never know where that. you're standing with an, in a memorial spark book you know do you like Miss Jean Brody who you know but we I don't think... know where we stand and, and then I think almost most, most crucially she, she's you know she points out I am not writing so that the reader would think me a nice person mm. which is very I think uh evolved thing to do actually i think a lot of contemporary novels are sort of written uh with the author hoping that their reader will think that they are a good and moral person but i guess what i really more than the sort of sentence by sentence maxims that occur i the thing that i found really relatable about fleur's process of writing a novel um was just how much mess there was around it of course this is the mess of sequentin stealing her manuscript or dotty you know, stealing her manuscript for Sequentin or uh, her publisher suddenly giving up on her and her having to find a new publisher. But there are these great moments of, I guess, emotional mess where she does feel a lot of um, vanity and almost pride around this book. What she says she does at the time, of course, she's writing as an older woman and she goes on to say, you know, Warren de Chase was not going to be my, my best novel, of course. But she recognises even as a young woman that... Um, you know, particularly around the stage where it comes to editing. She just wants to move on to the next book. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I think maybe I've gone down a bit of a chin-stroking route with this book, and, and it's to, to the extent that it's beginning to sound like, like less fun to read than it is. <laughs> um, do, do you want to speak to the fun? The fun, the fun for me is in the dialogue, and I think I, it's so difficult to write dialogue. I very rarely... It's difficult to read dialogue as well. You, as I get older, the more books I read, the less I believe in characters speaking in novels. Um, but Muriel Spark handles dialogue beautifully. And my favourite is um, is always, again, I love Edwina because she'll just say the most outrageous stuff. I found myself doing voices. <laughs> I was reading this book. I won't do them for this podcast. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she, she's a real scene stealer, Edwina. That's true. And, and you're presence. right. You're right. Flair does does love her, and also a friend called Solly, yeah. uh, an old guy. Uh, but both of whom helped to get her published. Both of whom she kind of, in a way, uses. There is there is a certain there is a certain ruthlessness to her, which 
most people identify about Muriel Spark. You know that, that 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 was absolutely all about the writing. There was there was nothing really that got between her and her and her art, well, and, and that's the way she liked it. And, and, and yeah, I think um, Spark does address this kind of sideways, um, that sort of ruthlessness. I actually don't take it for ruthlessness so much as I, I guess just being a really great woman. Um, there are loads of um, sort of whiny English Rose kind of characters like Dottie in this book, but equally so Fleur and Edwina, I guess that's why I love them so much. Uh, perhaps they're only ruthless in comparison to the much more kind of conservative, preserved, sort of very pretty soft young women who otherwise populate this book. And the first time that Fleur meets Sir Quentin, he kind of has a bit of an argument with Miss um, Beryl Timms as to you know, how she should say her name. And it goes, um, the first morning, Sir Quentin introduced her to me as Beryl, Miss Timms, which she, in a top people's accent, corrected to Miss Beryl Timms. And while I stood waiting with my coat on, they had an altercation over this. He maintaining politely that before her divorce, she had been Miss Thomas Timms. And now she was, to be precise, Beryl Miss Timms. But in no circumstances was Miss Beryl Timms accepted usage. Miss Timms then announced that she could produce her national insurance card, her ration book, and her identity card to prove her name was Miss Beryl Timms. Sir Quentin held that the clerks employed in the ministries which issued these documents were ill-informed. Later, he said, he would show her what he meant under correct forms of address in one of his reference books. After that, he turned to me. I hope you're not argumentative, he said. An argumentative woman is like water coming through the roof. It says so in the Holy Scriptures, either Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, I forget which. I hope you don't talk too much. And this idea that, yeah. you know, it, it is really rare, you know, to have a woman who will correct a man like Sir Quentin about what her name is, what she wants her name to be. This idea that Sir Quentin is the kind of guy who turns to a young woman like Fleur Talbot and says, oh God, I hope you're not going to natter away at me. They're perhaps only ruthless in the face of Yeah, that. no, and I think that might be uh, saying it's quite hard. To, she says straight up in Curriculum because I, I fed my experiences of the Poetry Society into loitering with intent. Uh, but she says it in, she says it in, uh, I transferred a number of my experiences in the Poetry Society, as I usually do, into a fictional background in my novel, Loitering with Intent, <laughs> but really transforms. But I think that's, that, I'm sure that's the sort of thing that the patronising so-and-sos at the a Poetry Society would say to her, you know, just... Joe, can I just introduce a, a, a mildly controversial note? I, I was reading, always, always. Okay, here's uh, John Updike talk, talking about Muriel Spark, talks about uh, particularly her later novels as uh, having unmistakable power rather carelessly applied. Right. Now, and he, he, I think in Loitering with Intent, for example, he says, we don't ever find out. So Quentin's up to no good. He's a, you know, as you say, a sort of a Jack the Ripper, psychological Jack the Ripper, was it? Psychological Jack the yeah. Ripper. Uh, but quite what he's up to. There's some hint that he's going to use the autobiographies to blackmail them, but then he's, we don't really know what he's up to. We don't really care whether he gets away with it or not. We just know it, that he's just, feeding them amphetamines. Yeah, he's <laughs> feeding them amphetamines to, to lose them. He seems to be setting up some, but we don't quite know what, what's going on and we don't really mind. Is it a bit, I, I mean, okay, I would suggest that the primary Christine Brody is by far her best book. And I, I think, but it's, you know, you could think of that Joseph Heller quotes when he people used to say to him you, you haven't written a book as good as catch 22 since <laughs> and he would say who has <laughs> uh, well i i know i think um uh, uh, spark would, would would be within her rights to say the same thing about miss jean brody right but but there is a sort of finishedness that everything sort of whereas in quite a lot of her books there's the sense of 
as I say, well, as I say, as Updike says, are rather carelessly applied. The the closing, um, and I think she slightly makes a justification of that. There's one bit where she says, you know, I don't like to load, it's bad manners to load too much involvement, emotional involvement onto your readers. Mm. You know, just be quite funny and get out of there. <laughs> but is that fair? And, and the very last image, uh, this is not a giveaway at all. Fleur is in uh, a France, isn't she? She says, some small boys were playing football and the ball came flying straight towards me. I kicked it with a chance grace which if I had studied the affair and tried hard, I never could have done. So she's sort of saying, actually, if you try too hard, it doesn't have the same gracefulness. Mm -hmm. And that might be true, but it does mean that it's careless, I think. Away into the air, this is the football. Away into the air it went and landed in the small boy's waiting hands. The boy grinned. And so, having entered the fullness of my years, from there, by the grace of God, I go on my way rejoicing. That's gorgeous. Mm. I think it depends what you want out of your novels, right? Whether you want a sense of closure or, or sort of, you know, everything sort of neatly plotted out and explained, um, or, or at least, you know, halfway done. So, I. Uh, no, that, that's what I mean. That, that I'm, I'm being like, you know, uh, Dottie saying to, you know, Fleur, you know, you know what, 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 what am I supposed to think? Yeah, you know, readers well, like to know where they stand. Well, but, 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 I'll tell you where I stand because yeah. I, I really did love the experience of reading this book and it's because um that final line of Fleur going on her way rejoicing I think is the um and, and by the grace of God as well yeah. is the kind of um animus of the of the novel it's joyful it, it's a really effervescent book and it's really rare to I mean it's got <laughs> it's got some fairly dark subject matter in it you know Sequentin is as we said drugging these people until they go insane there are a few suicides, you know, a car crash. Um, the conditions in which Fleur lives, if you think about them properly, you know, at the beginning she's negotiating her salary with Sir Quentin and uh, he offers her a rate that uh, works for 1936, but of course it's 1949 in the novel. Yeah. Um, her circumstances are grim, but everything is handled so lightly and so joyfully. And I, it's so rare now that I read a book that, not only makes me laugh, but I guess makes me take stock of the everyday in a in a warm and in a way that makes me quite frankly want to go to a party. This book made me feel so happy to be 26. That's the only way I can describe it. I just looked around and I was like, oh my God, I, 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 life I, is like this. You know, I lived in a studio flat in North London that was similarly, you know, cramped and packed and shabby in the way that Fleur lives in her bed sit now. But, you know, when she has guests over and she throws dinner parties in it, they all look around admiringly and they say, God, you've really made something for yourself here, even even though you have meagre circumstances. That sort of sense, yes, no, that's, it is, it, there is a sense of joy on a, on a woman hitting her stride, isn't there? Yeah. A young woman just hitting her stride and she's, and she's off. No, uh, then she goes on her way rejoicing, yes, no, that's, that is terrific. James, who would you recommend this novel to? Uh, Again, most, most most sort of mildly bookish people, uh -huh. uh, uh, people who don't, um, but I, I would advise them to, to do less what I did, which just just in, just breeze your way through it, enjoy it, enjoy the laughs, and enjoy the little coincidences, yeah. and, and don't try and necessarily work it all out. A because it slightly spoils the fun, and B because you won't be able to anyway. Well, I think it's a it's an incredibly slim book. That's a great thing about Muriel Spark. It uh, bears rereading, you know. You can always get back to it in an afternoon. Yeah, it, just it, go through it again. And, and yes, there's so many great scenes, and that, and that picture of post-war London, as I say, is very 
shop. Yeah, the, it's the, striking. The, 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 All the black know, market goods. Yeah, that and the get... bed sits and the gas rings and they yeah, yeah and they are eking out food. I, mean, I imagine that on the whole, the most most people listening to this are pretty bookish or mildly <laughs> bookish or at least interested in books, in which case I would recommend Loitering with Intent. Uh, we should also say a little bit about, the, because it's a book of the month, uh, I'm afraid that uh, gives our listeners um, certain... Don't call uh, it homework. <laughs> yeah, the, the duties would be overstating it. Opportunities, chances. <laughs> uh, I don't want to say what those duties... Experience stro- and exposure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to say what those duties, uh, opportunities are. So on our website, you will find extracts, discussion points and reading guides. Yeah, so to send the, <laughs> the entire country into a frenzy of discussing uh, Loitering with Intent by Muriel Spark over the next month. And we do look forward to hearing uh, what you thought of it. And Yeah, um, come back to us. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. To find out more about uh, Loitering with Intent, the Booker Prize book of the month, visit our website, thebookerprizes.com, where you can find essays, reading guides and extracts. You can let us know what you think by uh, leaving a comment on our Substack and find us on all social media platforms on at the Booker Prizes. Uh, so with that, uh, I'm Joe Amia. And I'm James Walton. And it's been very nice talking to you. Bye. Bye.